This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. While looking for another book to pick up, I ran across this title and the dots instantly connected. I love log homes and I love Shepherdstown, West Virginia, where I attended university, was married, and it was the subject of my own first book. So diving deep into this story with another author seemed like a perfect story to bring to this week's PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast today. We're excited to be talking with Joe Goss, who's had a really interesting career. We're going to talk about all that. Um, and he has also spent several years now uh, working to restore and rehabilitate a historic log cabin and has written a book all about that story, which is called Frontier Cabin Story, The Rediscovered History of a West Virginia Log Farmhouse. Um, and I have to say, sort of in the, in the interest of full disclosure, Shepherdstown is a is a uh, important place to me. I went to Shepherd, uh, met my wife at Shepherd, got married in Shepherdstown, wrote a book on Shepherdstown. So um, I love Shepherdstown. And so when I saw this book came out, I thought, oh, we've got to get Joe on here to talk about this. Um, so we love to get to know our guests um, a little bit before we get into the, the meat of the subject. So where did you grow up and what got you so interested in, in history? Uh, well, I grew up uh, in several different places across the country. Uh, I was born in uh, eastern Pennsylvania in one of the little coal mining towns there called Mahanoy City. Um, and uh, when my dad got back from the war in England, we moved to New Jersey. We spent about five years there, I think. And uh, my uh, dad moved us all to uh, Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> To, uh, to get away from the the uh, north climate of the Northeast. He grew up in Boston, and uh, I think he never had a good word to say in my lifetime about that place and the cold and snow and so forth of his uh, youth and young adulthood. Um, so we lived in uh, Tucson for a few years as kids. It was uh, always sunny and uh, never seemed to rain but uh, i think the i think the oppressive heat got to my mom because you know those were the days before before we really had air conditioning even though we had adobe houses which had you know 12 inch thick or more thick walls i think we had taken a few vacations uh, on the west coast in san diego in particular and uh, so my folks decided that uh, they would pull up the uh, roots again and move us on to uh, San Diego, where I spent the rest of my uh, growing up years. Went on to college at uh, UC Berkeley up in the Bay Area after I, I uh, studied uh, mechanical engineering uh, there in my uh, college years. Um, and to help uh, pay my way through, even though the cost was, you know, in today's terms, was like a joke. Um, <laughs> I think we uh, we had tuition of $120 a year, which we thought was outrageous. Uh, I couldn't afford that. So I um, I went into the, uh, the work-study program in the engineering school, which uh, sent me on a number of assignments to work in the field. I did finally graduate. <laughs> from Berkeley in 1967. Uh, let's face it, that was uh, deep into the Vietnam War era, and I had no desires and uh, or any thoughts about uh, being part of that, what I considered illegal and immoral uh, war. And uh, I did uh, manage to secure an invitation um, to join the Peace Corps and to go to uh, work in uh, Afghanistan at the Ministry of Agriculture in Kabul. I uh, had mostly uh, field work 
which took me around all around the country into some of the most uh, remote areas of Afghanistan at that time. This, this is in the days long before their uh, civil wars and the Russian invasion and so forth. It was, it was a, a very peaceful um, constitutional monarchy. I mean, we were actually safer there than we were in this country. That, uh, that brings me up uh, <laughs> through my uh, uh, growing up and uh, young adulthood. Yeah, and I, I think it's interesting that, you know, I think there's a, sort of this perception that sort of engineering is um, kind of this, you know, very logical left brain kind of thing. <laughs> um, and history and preservation doesn't always like restoring a log cabin um, <laughs> doesn't always follow. We're, we're actually Preservation Maryland, which powers this podcast is restoring a log cabin right now. And um, it doesn't always follow all the rules laid out by what, you know, I imagine when you build a, uh, a nuclear power plant, it's all very precise and there's nothing exactly precise about, <laughs> about a historic building. So, you That's had this true. really, really colorful, interesting career going around working on these different projects from you know Afghanistan all across the world. How do you end up owning <laughs> an 18th century cabin in West Virginia? Um, well, that's that's a story all its own. Uh, I uh, when I got back to uh, the states um, in 1970, I uh, met my future wife Lynn Fleming, who uh, who was actually uh, from New York. She was is from a, uh, a French Belgian uh, family. <laughs> they they were much more uh, appreciative of old things, shall we say. And so I, I kind of married into that <laughs> atmosphere. Uh, Lynn's parents had <laughs> had their own 18th century house up in New Hampshire long before uh, we were married. Uh, we spent uh, many happy weekends up there and have fond memories of it. And uh, it was filled with antiques and uh, beautiful things um, to complement its uh, period. And so I, I just kind of had that uh, sense and, and flavor from those years. When Lynn and I were close to retirement, uh, we started uh, looking around for a place of our own <laughs> that you know some kind of antique property that we could have and cherish and and hopefully where our even our grandkids could uh, perhaps come come by and stay as as our own children did when when they were growing up uh, and uh, so we had been looking by that time we had moved to the Washington D.C. area uh, for work reasons so we were looking um, in that vicinity in Loudoun County, Virginia, particularly in the town of Waterford, which is a beautifully preserved historic town. If anybody in this area knows or recognizes it, they think it's uh, quite well known and famous for uh, its preservation efforts. But uh, we. We, even though we found a number of places there that became available, the um, the finances just never seemed to work. It seemed to be just uh, out of reach uh, financially. And then uh, out of the clear blue, a place in uh, uh, West Virginia came up to the market and our agent uh, referred us to it. And uh, we went out to take a look and we were just immediately struck um, by its authenticity and um, its um, its setting, which is uh, still quite a bit like it was over 200 years ago, uh, surrounded by working farms. Um, and uh, the house itself was uh, well restored, I, I feel, uh, by the previous owners, uh, try to re recover and restore the uh, historic elements of it, which never completely disappeared, I don't think, because it was such a humble 
place in the beginning that nobody really paid much attention to it or cared much about it and so didn't put much into it uh, and therefore probably helped preserve it um, uh, until we came along. People should know that, um, you know, Shepherdstown, when you think West Virginia, you think sort of like way out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and Shepherdstown is in the eastern panhandle of West Virginia, which is really only about 60 miles from Washington, D.C. I and mean, people commute from this place. It, 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 you know, it's, it certainly is, you know, it's not exactly a suburb of it, but it's, it's within that metropolitan area in a way, uh, or at least the metropolitan area has grown out there. So, um, it's, it's in a unique place. Um, and I, I think it would be interesting. People might be fascinated. Maybe first we can talk a little bit about the house itself, kind of describe it for us. So, you, you kind of mentioned the condition it was in when you took it on, but what kind of building are we talking about? What's the size of it? Um, and then maybe we'll talk a little bit about some of the work that you have done. The original log uh, pen or log crib, as they call it, is about 20 feet by 26 feet. It's two-story. It has uh, only one chimney at, at the north end, and it's an inboard uh, chimney and fireplace as opposed to an outboard, which points to its very humble uh, beginnings because uh, most houses even of this size would have had two chimneys, one at each end. It, it definitely was uh, was kind of on the lower end, I think, of the uh, socioeconomic scale of, the, of that, even of that time. The original floor plan is completely lost. The original uh, staircase, which would have been very narrow and very steep, uh, was tucked in between the fireplace and the outside wall. Uh, that is gone, although I found traces of the um, existence of that uh, staircase, and it's very typical of, of houses of this period, I've, I've learned. The owners at some point, I think it was probably in the 1830s, 40s, or 50s, uh, put in a new, sta new staircase kind of in the middle, almost in the middle of the house in, in a much larger format, even has a 90-degree uh, uh, turn and a landing on it. Um, but it, it kind of breaks up the, uh, the the flow of the space awkwardly. It's, it's all one open area now. The second floor is a little bit uh, harder to uh, decipher because uh, the log walls are all covered up there with plaster. So it's, you know, it's virtually impossible to read, to read the logs as you can in the first floor. And I know that your, um, the foreword to your book is written by John Allen, who is a fantastic architectural historian, has written probably yes. one of the best documented histories of any county in America. Um, spent yes. to, I, don't, I don't know how many years he spent doing this, but documenting almost every, I think basically every 18th century yeah. and probably early 19th century he, home. He, vis he visited us uh, here um, about a year or two after we, uh, we bought this place. And uh, he, he didn't know about it, apparently. It was, I mean, this house was so unknown and uh, so little regarded that, that it had been lost, basically, to the memories of, of just anybody in town, even, even people associated with uh, historic Shepherdstown here. Nobody could tell, tell us anything about the original ownership. And so John Allen was not aware of it either. He, he sort of w said he wished he had known about it because it might have, he might have included it in his book. Well, that might be a good place for us to take a pause and then come back and talk about the book, um, which people who are listeners would, would love to read this and should pick it up. And we have a link in the show notes where they can buy it. Um, 
and and we'll do that right here on PreserveCast after we take our break. PreserveCast would like to thank EHT Traceries for sponsoring today's episode. Traceries is a certified women-owned small business specializing in history and historic preservation. Since 1977, the firm has provided a wide range of preservation-related services, including preservation planning, technical preservation services, historic tax credit certification, survey and documentation, environmental sustainability, and resilience planning, along with regulatory compliance. To learn more about EHT Traceries Historic Preservation Team and Projects, visit traceries.com. That's T-R-A-C-E-R-I-E-S dot com. We want to thank Oliver Pluff and Company for sponsoring today's episode of PreserveCast. Oliver Pluff and Company tells the story of historic American beverages, including teas, spiced drinks, cacao, and coffee for historic sites, national parks, gourmet markets, and consumers looking for a great beverage hand-packaged in signature artisan tins. To enjoy a cup of history and learn more about what Oliver Pluff and Company offers, please visit oliverpluff.com. That's Oliver Pluff, spelled P-L-U-F-F dot com. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Um, today, we're talking with Joe Goss, who's had a really interesting career and has uh, now, in retirement, taken on uh, an even more colorful project, which is the the care and rehabilitation of a historic cabin in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. He's the author of a book called Frontier Cabin Story, The Rediscovered History of a West Virginia Log Farmhouse. Uh, And there is a link in our show notes to pick up and buy the book. Uh, It makes a great read, um, also a great gift. Um, And before we took our break, we sort of talked a little bit about the history of the sort of the layout of the house. Uh, We didn't really get into the history yet, which is what I want to touch on, because that's really where your book um, does great justice to it. But um, you know, we sort of talk about the layout, sort of this sort of very traditional um, uh, log structure, sort of a humble place, one log, one one chimney you describe, um, and that John Allen, who's a we, I guess we probably should now they keep mentioning him, we should get him on at some point um, to talk about his book. But um, a really fantastic architectural historian in the area has done some you know poking around, looking at it, and actually wrote the forward to your book. So let's discuss the research project because the book goes into like amazing detail that you normally don't get. And I'm curious, maybe as a as a, a start, the house is really rich in history. Do you think that's unique? Or does any house that lasts this long contain this kind of history as long as you look long enough? Um, Is this something really special? I mean, I know it's special, but do you think that this is sort of inherent in every house? Is that part of the story that every house has a story to tell like this? What do you feel about the the history that you've uncovered? Well, I think all the houses uh, that are still standing in this area of this age or approximate uh, age have similar stories because they were all built by the founding families. This house, it it turned out, uh, and I had no idea to begin with (laughs) that it was, but it was also built by one of the um, founding families of uh, Shepherdstown. Uh, And I can get into that in a minute, but just to describe um, how I kind of got interested in and went about the researching of of the uh, history of this place. We uh, 
built a, uh, a major addition to the uh, to the house in uh, 2013 2014 uh, on the first floor so that it would at least help uh, us uh, live in in a more modern state with a master bedroom suite and laundry room and that sort of thing but we um, we built it in keeping with the style of the original house and in fact we I mean not not in the style of a log house but um, we used similar, uh, wood trim on the windows and doors, and uh, we even bought antique doors and hardware uh, for the uh, for the addition. After we finished that project, I, my curiosity was just kind of overtaking me uh, about the age and the original ownership of the house. We were given to believe that it was built around 1780. Uh, this was just from basically from the tax records. Nobody else had confirmed that uh, date for us or could. With with houses this old, um, it is a suspect kind of a number because people will inflate uh, the age of their houses sometimes to give it uh, more cachet, I guess, or uh, mystique. Uh, and so I, I started uh, going to the uh, county clerk's office. So I thought uh, very naively I would be able to track down the original owner within a few uh, few minutes, actually. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> so in, in Charlestown, uh, the county seat, uh, I started going back through the through the uh, deeds and and uh, got as far back as 1914 and came to a total dead end where the owners prior to the owners in selling the house in, uh, and property in 1914 uh, mentioned no uh, previous owner. So I thought that, uh, you know, I was stuck and uh, would never find out who <laughs> Uh, originally owned this place. I didn't realize at that time, you know, because I've never done anything, any research like this, I didn't realize how when properties went through generations and families, they hardly ever, if ever, did it through recorded deeds. Uh, There was, in this case, there were no uh, recorded deeds to trace to, to original ownership. This is this is kind of where I think some of my engineering training came into play because, you know, I'm used to researching um, what we call as-built drawings in in engineering terms uh, see when we're when we're renovating or adding to or repairing existing work uh, we have to go back and find out what was done before I, I started thinking well gee maybe there's a way to do this kind of in the reverse order by starting from the earliest period and moving forward rather than starting from the present and moving backward. And uh, so I started doing research on the internet and uh, found um, maps of tax maps of the area. The earliest one I I found was from 1852. Uh, It showed the owner as being Walter B. Selby at that time. And uh, I thought, well, he must be the original owner and it may not date from 1780. So I pursued that a little further and I, I couldn't find any any record of his purchase. I happened on the um, Berkeley County uh, Historical Society, which is the county next to Jefferson, and which Jefferson County was a part of until 1801. After months and months of research, I, I did discover records in their vault, their locked vault room, a single handwritten page of notes, research notes by a very well-known genealogist 
geologist and historian. He had been researching a property that abutted our property that's called the Aspen Pool Farm. And he noted just kind of in passing that, oh, to the west of the Aspen Pool was the uh, George Morgan uh, property. Morgan family name was quite well known uh, in Shepherdstown uh, from the very earliest days. Um, I researched, uh, you know, genealogical information on, on the Morgans, and I found um, the first um, settler in this area from that family was Richard Morgan. He moved here in like 1730, I don't know, two or three or four. He has an, a little stone house that is still standing, and I have not been able to see it because it's not, it's in private hands and it's not uh, accessible. It was built in 1734. Richard Morgan had a whole bunch of children, one of whom was Colonel William Morgan, bought thousands of acres of, of land from uh, uh, Thomas Lord Fairfax in the 1750s. And I found somebody has gone through and actually mapped out all those land grants. So I was able to locate our property on that map of land grants. And sure enough, uh, William Morgan bought the, the property on which uh, this uh, house is currently located in 1756, which which certainly would have far predated the, the house itself. But um, so as time went on, I found I found a um, a will of William Morgan's. He had been in the uh, French and Indian War and in the Revolutionary War. He was kind of a, a personality in in the uh, area locally. Uh, he had a a recorded will. He mentions that he gives 200 acres of land to each of three of his sons, and that will was dated 1788. I connected George, George Morgan from William Morgan's will, to the George Morgan of uh, Ron uh, Don Woods page of research notes at the Berkeley County Historical Society and said, I've got my man. George Morgan is is the first owner who ever lived in this house and must have built it or had it built, but uh, he's, he's the guy. He's number one. So that gives you a real sense, I mean, for people listening who haven't done this kind of work before, just really a kind of a deep dive into the, the, <laughs> the difficulty and the detail, particularly going back to an 18th century structure. Um, so that's, I mean, that's the land record side, which, you know, some people get into land records, some people, you know, it just depends. But you've you've obviously pulled a lot of, are there any, like, we can't share them all here, but, yeah. um, and, you know, I would encourage people to pick up the book because that's where you get the full story. But um, maybe before we, before we depart here, any, like, uh, special or interesting historical snapshots beyond the land records that you have uncovered letters, things like that, images. I'm curious what what has what has sort of humanized the place beyond yeah. beyond yeah. that. Yeah, well, I I couldn't find out much about George Morgan, although I, I did find that he uh, participated in the Revolutionary War. He was on the march to Piscataway, New Jersey, to join uh, with uh, uh, General Washington's forces in Piscataway which uh, was a battle which uh, the British won, unfortunately, uh, for George. Uh, that's the only record I can find of him. He died in uh, 1796 and must have left his um, property here to, to his widow, Drusilla. I, I have been able to find 
uh, some very scant records of slaves uh, in the census records that were held by Drusilla and her subsequent husbands. So I, I know that slaves did work on this property in some capacity. Um, in 1811, beginning in 1811, her children, who must have inherited the house by that time, started selling selling the property off. And uh, they sold it in three uh, different tranches, all of which uh, were bought by Walter B. Selby in 1811, 1815, and 1817. So by 1817, Walter Selby owned the whole place. He never lived in this house. In fact, uh, the year before he bought this property or started buying it, he bought uh, the Wincoop Tavern in Shepherdstown, which is a, a mansion basically uh, where, where he and his family lived. The best I can understand it is he, he was looking to buy this place to be part of the supply, the supply chain for his dry goods business where he could you know, grow uh, some of the crops and seeds. And uh, Walter Selby uh, had many children of his own, uh, one of which was Eliza, I believe Eliza, uh, Selby, who met uh, a um, John Francis Hamtramck. He uh, was probably one of the most famous uh, historical figures in, in Shepherdstown. He was uh, commissioned by President uh, John Quincy Adams to be the Indian agent to the Osage Indian Nation in St. Louis. So he and his new wife uh, moved out there for several years. Uh, in, in the progress of my research, I found that <laughs> Uh, Duke University, uh, their uh, rare book and manuscript library, the Rubenstein Library, has John Francis Hamtramck's personal papers. So I made it my business to uh, travel down there and go through every single one of the uh, 2,630 documents that uh, his papers contain and found records from his um, activities out in St. Louis. They were very interesting. And uh, uh, letters uh, back to uh, Walter Selby from his daughter and, uh, and from another daughter who came out to visit um, her sister, Eliza. Just uh, talking about uh, kind of somewhat petty um, concerns of the day. Eliza is a, a much less pleasant uh, person to deal with, I, I sensed, because she was um, uh, quite incensed that her father, Walter, had not sent their furniture as she had requested and as he had promised, and she was demanding it and swearing to never uh, uh, visit him again or see him again if, if the furniture didn't arrive. Uh, just very petty stuff. Her sister, Sarah, uh, was was much more uh, compassionate and uh, also still asking for money, though, from her father when she was out in St. Louis, uh, telling him that uh, she hoped to attract a, uh, a young uh, merchant, uh, after which uh, she would never again uh, ask for one cent from her father. <laughs> she was successful uh, in that pursuit. Um, but there, there's just a trove of, of um, interesting historical documentation in that collection, which I never uh, expected to find. It, it, I mean, there's just more and more that can be uh, said and, and read into uh, some of these records. I, I had hoped to find uh, early photographs of, of some of these um, personalities. Uh, I know that there must have been photographs of Walter Selby at some point because there was a, there was a notice, an ad in the Shepherdstown Register newspaper 
1850, advertised uh, for uh, daguerreotypes. If anybody wanted a, a good likeness, um, that they should visit uh, such and such uh, studio that was uh, being set up for two weeks only um, on the second floor of Walter Selby's store. Uh, I'm, I'm sure Walter himself must have had a, had a daguerreotype uh, taken at the time, but I've never been able to find anything of that sort. Yeah, and I I think that the the fun thing about this and for people who are going to pick up the book and kind of go in depth and get to know more about it is just to kind of get a sense for how difficult um, but how uh, potentially promising and fruitful some of this research can be in finding these sorts of things. So um, before we go, um, what's next for you? Is uh, are future projects happening um, <laughs> at this at at the uh, at the farm? Probably always a project on the horizon. But, but what's yeah, going? Are, what's next? There are there are always projects, uh, always improvements that could be made. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, these are just kind of uh, routine, uh, mundane uh, things around the property. The, the house is pretty much uh, as as we want it at this point, and so we don't uh, anticipate any any further work on the house. But um, out around on the grounds, which still re- maintains a, a, about ten acres of property of the original two hundred and seventy-five acres or so that Walter Selby had, uh, we try to maintain. There, there are a lot of walking trails and paths which we have mowed, and uh, we try to maintain those. Um, we like to uh, improve the driveway, which is pretty treacherous, uh, but uh, that's about it. Uh, it's just, um, you know, it's very uh, comforting and uh, soothing, uh, especially in these times of the pandemic uh, when we, you know, are so uh, constricted in, in what and where we can go, where we can, what we can do. Um, we do hope to welcome our our children and grandchildren back out here. They haven't been here for over a year, and we really miss them. Um, I mean, they live in the D.C. area, so we, we do see them at a distance uh, quite uh, regularly every week. But, um, you know, we just really long to... Uh, to have them here again, uh, where we can be close and we can actually play with the children and read with them and uh, uh, do the things that uh, uh, grandparents really want to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that is definitely a, um, a a common theme of everyone that we've been talking to. So before we go, we ask this question of everyone, uh, normally pretty difficult, but what is your favorite historic place or site? Favorite historic place or site? Gosh. Um, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, you mean in the in the anywhere, uh, anywhere, anywhere? Gosh, uh, I guess I've always been most in awe of is Hagia Sophia in Istanbul. <laughs> I don't know if any of your uh, listeners uh, have ever been there. Probably they have, but uh, it is just a wonder of the world and of such age. And to be in, you know, as as if it were um, a building of our, it, it is a, a building of our own era, but yet 1,500 years old and and still occupied and used and uh, of vast proportions, especially for for the age in which it was built. 
um, it's, it's just awe-inspiring. I, I, you know, that, that's my personal opinion anyway. Well, that's a, that's a perfect place to end this conversation. Um, we've covered a lot of ground from Istanbul to Shepherdstown <laughs> and everywhere in between. Uh, it's been a lot of fun talking with you, getting to hear about the passion behind the research and how you, um, you know, connected the dots and found out um, the story of this um, humble yet historic farmhouse and encourage people to pick up the book. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. PreserveCast would like to thank the University of Colorado College of Architecture and Planning for sponsorship of today's episode, a university where you can earn a master's degree in historic preservation that focuses on environmental sustainability, placemaking with historic buildings, and preserving large-scale landscapes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening, and keep on preserving.